Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. And welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about abusers and empathy. But before we jump into that topic, I want to take a moment to remind you of PeaceWorks University. PeaceWorks University is our online membership community. And if you are benefiting from what you're hearing here on the PeaceWorks podcast, then PeaceWorks University is your best next step. You can learn more about PeaceWorks University at chrismoles.org. Okay, so we've been talking about questions regarding abusers, individuals, helpers, survivors, maybe even some uh, perpetrators themselves have been asking us some questions about abusive behavior and abuser's personality. And today there, uh, there's a question regarding empathy. And the, um, the notion is very interesting to me. The question is, uh, since abusers do not have empathy, how can they possibly take responsibility. And so there's a lot of assumptions, a lot of assumptions happening here. And I appreciate the, the question. Um, the, the first assumption is that uh, all abusers lack empathy. It's a very widely held um, belief. I do think it is somewhat inaccurate. I want to be really clear. There are a, a subcategory of individuals who, who many of which have been abusive, who lack clear indicators of empathy. And uh, you'll often hear people talk about them. Um, many folks will label them on an antisocial spectrum or a sociopathic um, label uh, and even, you know, psychotic, psychopathic labels. However, um, th- these individuals that are even antisocial or sociopathic um make up a small percentage of those who are being held accountable for domestic abuse, for instance. And I, I don't mean that in a way to undermine anyone or, or, or disappoint anyone. I'm, I'm just saying that the, the research in particular around criminal groups, those are the ones we have the most data on um, individuals who are in um, accountability groups following a, criminal charge or a civil order of protection, the vast majority of those men are not necessarily on the um, antisocial spectrum. There, there are varying degrees to which um, individuals, men in particular, do empathize or struggle with empathy. And so I think it is somewhat of a, of a, of a myth or maybe just a misunderstanding that anyone who has participated in abusive behavior using power to control their partner or to control another person is therefore to, it's to be assumed that they lack empathy, that there's no capacity for empathy. I think what maybe is better understood is that individuals who have used power to control their partner or other folks, uh, folks who are abusive vary to the degree in which they practice empathy. And, um, I think that's more in line with humanity, with people. And certainly 
when you have individuals who, from a Christian perspective, a gospel perspective, maybe they have a seared conscience or a hard heart. Uh, perhaps they have habitualized their behavior in such a way that they are justifying, rationalizing, minimizing. Certainly there will be less capacity for empathy. Uh, dehumanization, objectification will in and of itself reduce one's capacity for empathy. So I think the, the first thing to address is that it's not a complete lack of empathy, although that, that does seem to exist within some subsets of individuals. Um, there may be a difficulty, a lower capacity, or maybe barriers to that empathy. And you know, to the second part of the question, how can they take responsibility? And so responsibility uh, is something that I think we can promote uh, whether or not a person encounters complete empathy. It's, it's one thing to sympathize, right, to be able to see from a perspective. It's another to be able to feel from that perspective. And, and I would say a, a lot of perpetrators or anyone who commits an offense is going to have a difficult time feeling what the other person felt or experiencing what the other person experienced. But it is possible, I think, to build that sympathy um, and then to encourage responsibility, R regardless of where we sit on the empathy or lack of empathy um, debate, I think what is important is that we do hold people accountable and we expect them to accept responsibility. And part of that is going to incorporate aspects of what the world may call empathizing, but what we may just refer to here as acknowledging the impact of one's abuse by really being able to wrestle with the impact and effects that your choices are having on another person. This is a difficult task because, as I said earlier, you can be dealing with someone who is hard-hearted, perhaps they have a seared conscience, uh, perhaps they have justified and rationalized their behavior in such a way that to accept an impact to even see the impact is difficult because many individuals at this point are claiming victimhood, meaning they are simply responding out of their victimization as they are a victim of their wife's disobedience or lack of submission or lack of respect. Um, and therefore they're not accountable. They shouldn't be responsible for the damage that they have caused because they're the ones who are being harmed that those those justifications exist. Those rationalizations exist. And so one of the things we try to do uh, when working with individuals is to highlight, to call them and call their attention to the impact of their abuse. That does not mean that they will in turn feel how their partner felt, but it is a first step in responsibility by seeing the damage in which their sin has caused. And so one way we might do that or often do that is we will be collecting data throughout the process, in particular, the behaviors, the choices, the actions that were committed. And so we are asking good questions and building out these lists of ways in which we've harmed our partner. And so we may collect things such as I called my partner, um, names. I threatened her. I strangled her. I threatened to take the kids. I 
isolated her from friends and family. I uh, isolated her by removing the spark plugs from the car and she couldn't um, escape. I threatened her by towering over her and wagging my finger in her face. And so the more data we're gathering, the more specifics that we're getting. And of course, we tie that to motives. That's, you know, biblical counseling 101. We're pulling out and addressing the heart. But one of the other things that we're going to want to do is to begin to take those scenarios, situations, descriptions, behaviors, and ask a series of questions regarding impact. When you when you towered over your wife, when you screamed these horrific names, when you were wagging your finger in her face, how do you think she felt in that moment? What thoughts may have been going through her head in that moment? What was her reaction in that moment? And so we begin to start to play around with and develop a framework for impact as we begin to have answers to those questions such as, well, she was afraid, she backed down, or she fought back, she uh, tried to compromise with me, she begged me, she remained silent, she began to cry. And so we start to then extrapolate those impacts. You know, what was the impact of my, you know, lording over my wife and wagging my finger? Well, it created fear. It caused great sadness. It was threatening. And so as I'm beginning to give voice and language to the impact, um, we're not necessarily guaranteeing empathy, but we're beginning to acknowledge the ways in which my behavior or the perpetrator's behavior is affecting the victim. This is a huge step as most of the time the perpetrator is talking about how the victim's behavior is affecting them. Of course, there's, there's so much more that could be said here, but I will say that I think it's also important as you're building out these big, much more robust conversations than, than we just exampled here, but you continue to build up these impact conversations. You may want to compare and contrast the impact of physical abuse to emotional abuse, uh, as many abusers will use the justification of, well, I never hit her or I only hit her once or et cetera, and beginning to compare and contrast with questions like in what ways are the physical abuse and the emotional abuse similar? In what ways are they different? And is it possible that the impact of the emotional abuse could outlast the impact of the physical abuse? Those type of discussions are rich with data and information and very helpful as you're trying to connect this person to responsibility. Speaking of responsibility, one of the things you can do in, in identifying the impact is you want to have the, the, the action, the intentions, and the impact. And, and we've got this on the board or we've got this on the homework assignment or what have you. And we're walking through each incident and and gathering more data and, and really laying out the effects, we may just want to say, you know, in what ways have you taken responsibility for this? In what ways have you accepted responsibility? And see if there's an answer. See if the answer is difficult or slow in being developed. That tells us a great deal. And see, if the ang- see if the answer is trite, trivial, 
um, or contrived, or if there's a level of sincerity. Of course, the contrast is in what ways are you not taking responsibility? In what ways have you brushed aside, ignored, or denied your responsibility? If you can actually have a discussion at that level, it can be tremendously helpful especially drawing an individual towards accountability, responsibility. Here's another question. In what ways am I working to understand my partner's point of view regarding the abuse? Have I been or have I been constantly denying or blaming or minimizing? In fact, I I see that as being one of the first fruit on the tree when you're interacting with an abusive individual is tendency to minimize, it's not that big of a deal. Tendency to blame, well, this never would have happened if she hadn't, or if I hadn't been drinking, or if the stressors in life hadn't have been A, B, C, or D. Or outright denial, it didn't happen. I'm not that type of person. I don't have problems. Those overt denials can be incredibly telling. In what ways am I working to understand her point of view? Well, I, I don't understand her point of view. Well, that wasn't the question. The question wasn't, To what degree do you understand her point of view? The question was, in what ways am I working? And if I'm not working towards understanding her point of view, am I, in essence, minimizing, dismissing, or shifting the blame? There's a healthy theological conversation to be had here, too, because obviously if, if the individual we're working with is not making an effort to understand, um, then, of course, 1 Peter Uh, Chapter 3, verse 7, can be a valuable tool as we as husbands are called to live with our wives in an understanding way, to treat them with respect as a weaker vessel, to uh, see them in mutuality as uh, an heir of God's grace. And that this understanding capacity, this um, willingness to live in consideration with our partner is a means of spiritual health, that without it, Uh, We have dysfunctional and impotent prayer lives. And so 1 Peter 3, 7 can be a tremendous teaching tool at this point as we're trying to develop that discipline and heart for understanding our partner. Otherwise, we, again, will return to dismissing, minimizing, denying, blaming, and that can be a series of questions to follow. Because if we don't even acknowledge the impact, right, then we're not willing to take responsibility. And if we're not willing to take responsibility, we have to take some action. And often that will be to minimize, to deny, to blame. It's not my fault. Or it's not my fault to the degree to which you want me to take accountability, which is very, very common. I'd like to share responsibility with my wife. Yes, I pinned her against the wall and I'm screamed horrible names at her, but she was disrespectful as well. She was nagging me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And and those type of negotiations can't be had in the counseling room because we are, in essence, when we agree to them, when we mutualize abuse, we end up diminishing the, the problem in and of itself. We end up reducing the impact of the violence, the impact of the abuse, and we can't properly hold them accountable. We end up holding them both accountable, and shared accountability is far more desirable to abuser than sole accountability. 
Some other questions we might ask may include, what excuses have you been using? What justifications have you been repeating to yourself? Here's another. In what ways have I been avoiding accountability? And what would it look like? Describe for me what it would look like if I really welcomed accountability. If I really set my heart and my mind on change. What would it look like? Being able to feel what a victim feels can be helpful. Being able to identify with your victim can be helpful, but I guess for me, the most pressing matter is, do you even recognize the damage that you've done? Whether you can feel to whatever extent or not, do you recognize the impact of your choices? How it has affected your partner? How it's affected you your community, your church, your children? And are you ready to take responsibility for not just the behavior, but the effects, the impact of the behavior? Are you ready to pursue righteousness? The, are you ready to set things right, to make amends, to stop making excuses, but to make progress? In the end, that's the responsibility of the abuser. So back to the question. I can't answer whether or not the individual person that you're working with has a high capacity for, for empathy or even sympathy. I don't know. But I do believe there is room to acknowledge the choices that they've made, the impact of those choices, and to take responsibility for both those choices and its impact. And I believe that's one of our responsibilities as helpers and counselors and pastors and biblical counselors is to provide people with the means of responsibility, the means of accountability, and to pursue that kind of transformation. Well, I hope that was helpful. I really appreciate the questions and thinking through the ideas of the impact of, of abuse and how that too must be repented of and, and changed uh, as we want to move forward and be God's type of people. Uh, thank you guys so much for being part of the PeaceWorks podcast. You are so appreciated. We love the fact that you gather with us every week. And uh, if you are listening on a major platform, would you rate, review, subscribe, follow, whatever their measuring mechanism is for for showing your support. Would you show your support to the PeaceWorks podcast? We, again, appreciate everybody contributing and being part of the PeaceWorks family. Thank you for the questions. Thank you for the time. And until next time, God bless.